Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday to you. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Bridgewater, and we are so glad that you are here. This is the first week of a brand new series that we're calling Asking for a Friend, and as you can tell, it's going to be a little interesting. Um, we, we will not deal with the sour cream question. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry. I know some of you were really, really hoping for that one. Now, you, you understand what the idea of asking for a friend is, right? Like, if there's a, if there's a question that you really want to ask, you kind of feel like maybe you should know the answer, uh, but you're a little embarrassed to ask, you can say, well, uh, uh, asking for a friend. You know, people do that on, on social media all the time. You ever seen that, you know? Think of some of these questions, like, um, is it rude to shove a breath mint in a friend's mouth while they're talking, asking for a friend. <laughs> you, you, you might be sending a message with that one, right? Or um, is it acceptable, is it okay, you know, to um, divorce your in-laws but keep your husband asking for a friend? Or flip it around, is it okay to divorce your husband to keep your in-laws asking? Oh, wow, uh, someone, someone says yes. Uh, we might have to talk about that one. Asking for a friend. Or how about this one? Um, let's just say that someone is a little over 30 and they, you know, let's just say a, a guy is a little over 30 and would really like to go to a Taylor Swift concert. Can you do that and not look creepy? Asking for a friend. <laughs> Dave says no. I'm with. I don't know who would ask that one. I'm not. I'm, I'm not a teeth swizzle fan. Uh, but uh, yeah. How about one more? Can you live in Bill's country and be a Chiefs friend? A Chiefs fan asking for a friend. The answer to that is absolutely yes, because I I live here now. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry to Bill's mafia. I. I I apologize. There are, there are all sorts of questions that, that we might approach, and many of them are funny and they're, they're silly, but, but then there's some ones that are, that are a little more serious. There's some ones that like I wrestled with when I was younger. See, I was raised by um, a, a pretty... I would say a, a pretty normal, like, but, but moral household. I was raised by parents who taught me right from wrong. Did, did any of you kind of grow up with that kind of mindset where parents just were really, really clear, like, this is right and, and this is wrong? I know not everybody grew up like that, but, but I did. I grew up like that. I grew up being told, like, Right is right, and, and wrong is wrong, and there, there's no, you know, there's no gray. It's just right and wrong. And as I grew up and I, I started learning more about the world, I kind of decided that I didn't really like those rules so much. I didn't like the right is right and wrong is wrong. I liked the, well, you know, this sounds good, so I'm going to do my own thing. And what's the big deal? Because it's, it's only once and it's not really, I'm not hurting anybody. That's how I started to think. I approached high school. My parents had rules about, you know, dating and rules about, you know, all sorts of things. And uh, 
uh, I didn't like them. And at first, I thought it's no big deal because I, I, I'm, I'm not hurting anybody. And I, I started to think like, you know, um, I started to think that it's just not a big deal. But over time, I ran into this sinking feeling. And it brings up kind of the question that we're going to deal with today, that we're going to ask for a friend. I ran into this sinking, sinking feeling like, wait a minute, what if I keep going and God's just done with me? I started to wrestle with that. I started to wrestle with, I started to wonder, like, could I, could I just go far enough away that God would just say, no, nah, that's it, I'm done. I started to wrestle with this question, and it goes like this. Does God give up on us? And really, the question that, that was behind it is, when does God give up on you? <laughs> Asking for a friend. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but the reality is my life and the things that I've done have forced me to wrestle with that question. I would guess, knowing our culture, I would, I would guess that, that maybe you've wrestled with that. Um, the reality is that I've met all kinds of people who tell me, well, if you knew what I did, I, I, I messed up my family and the choices that I made and I broke everything. There is no way that, that God would accept me now. If you knew what I said, if you knew how I treated them, if you knew my past, you would never invite me to church because I'm pretty sure that God's done with me. And here's the thing. I realize that lots of people in our culture think that. And so I want to wrestle with that question today. And thankfully, the scripture is really really surprisingly clear on it. There's a passage that is incredible that walks us through this question of when does God give up on you? Does he, does he, does he look at you and go, that's it, you've ran too far away, you, you're done, you've done too much, you've, you've forsaken me, you've ignored me, I'm done with you, I'm never going to listen to you again. Oof, that's heavy. So we're going to ask it for a friend. And there's a passage in the Gospel of Luke. It's found in Luke 15. It's an incredible passage that starts with a verse that just sets up the whole thing. In Luke 15, verse 1, it sets it up by saying this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's interesting. These are people, to, to give you context, in, in that culture, if you were a tax collector, do you know what you were? You were the worst of the worst. See, tax collectors, uh, Rome was in charge at that time. The Roman Empire was in charge of the nation of Israel where Jesus' life is occurring and it's all recorded. And the Jewish people could um, become tax collectors. They would bid for an area and they would say, I will collect X amount of taxes. And whoever had the highest bid, the, the Romans would hire them. In other words, you were saying, I'm going to pull the most money out of my people in this area. How do you think people thought about them? They thought they were traitors. 
They thought they were terrible. They thought they were no good, you know, good for nothings. People that nobody wanted to be around. And for some reason, those people, tax collectors, and then people that we call sinners, more often than not, when you find this text, it's dealing with people who are involved often in prostitution. These people were all gathering around to hear Jesus. For some reason, people who are nothing like Jesus wanted to be around Jesus. Why is that? Well, the very next verse brings up the tension or the the issue. It says this, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. The religious people, the quote-unquote church people of the day, the people who knew the Old Testament, they knew the Word of God. They're gathering around and they're upset. Why are they upset? They're upset because Jesus is spending time with messy people. People who back then they would have said God would have nothing to do with them. Or if God was ever going to have anything to do with them, they would have to clean up their lives, fix up their acts, pull themselves together, and 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 be clean people. They'd have to do something about themselves. So Jesus decided to take some time and wrestle with the question, why was he spending so much time with people that everybody else thought God would just turn his back on? Why was Jesus spending time with people like this? Why was Jesus hanging out with people that most people would say God could never forgive them. How could he? Unless they can clean themselves up, there's nothing that can be done. The religious people were all upset. So what did he do? He told three stories, okay? He told three stories about things that were lost. A story of a lost sheep, a story of a lost coin, and then he tells the story of a family and lostness. But the story doesn't go quite like you might think. Let me show you the story and what happens. Because in it, Jesus clearly illustrates what God has to say about people who are far from him. And it clearly demonstrates God's answer to the question of when does he give up on us? Look at what it says in verse 11. In verse 11, it says Jesus continued. So he's already told the first two stories, the story of a lost sheep and a lost coin. Now he's continuing. He continues and he says, there was a man who had two sons, okay? Sounds like a normal family. And then in verse 12, it says, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate, What is he saying? This is a younger son. Everyone knows that the younger son is a troublemaker, right? Is that normal in your family? I mean, I'm the oldest son, so I was well-behaved and did everything I was told to do, at least to their face. And then my younger brother, he's five and a half years younger than me, he was like, I don't care, I'm going to disobey you right in front of you and you just are going to have to deal with it. I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. The younger brother is like, hey dad, by the way, you know that whole inheritance thing that happens when you're dead? Can we just pretend like you're dead? (laughs) No, literally. That's what he's saying. Can you imagine that? 
You know what the real tension of this question is, or of this, of this passage is? The real tension of this passage is, how's the father going to react? How is the father going to respond? Now, most fathers in this case, do you, know, do you know what Jewish rabbis taught fathers to do in this particular case? Because they talk about it. We can, we can read about it in the writings from the early first century. They said, you are to take a son. If a son comes to you and asks you for his inheritance early, you're to take that son and kick him out of the family. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Because the son is basically asking, can we just pretend like you're dead? I wish you were dead. I want to just pretend that you were dead because I want my stuff. I want my inheritance. I want to do my own thing. I don't care what you think or what you have to say. Can we just act like it's already happened and you've kicked the bucket? Man, that's heavy. So what did the father do? He divided his property between them. So the son says, Dad, can we pretend you are dead? And then what? Well, he, the, the, the father did it. Now, in that culture, a couple of things, okay? If you had two sons, you would divide the, the inheritance into three shares. The oldest son would get two shares, and the youngest son would get one share. So this youngest son got one-third of all of the father's property, so to speak. If you had three sons, you would divide it into four shares, and the oldest would get half, and then the two younger would each get a quarter. You follow what I'm saying. The youngest son gets a third of the father's property, and what does he do? Look at the very next verse, verse 13. Not long after that, it wasn't long, he's at home, money's burning a hole in his pocket, what's he going to do? The younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. He went to the city. He went to Las Vegas. He went to who knows where, but he went and he made all kinds of friends. Yeah, of course, because that money's burning a hole in his pocket, and everybody was all too happy to help him spend it. Oh, you want to have a lavish party? Dude, I'm there. Let's go. And everybody was on board. Whatever he wanted to do, he did it. The language implies that he was a little bit like a man in the Old Testament. There's a man in the Old Testament, his name was Solomon. He asked God to make him very wise, and he was very wise. But later in his life, he kind of got a little disenfranchised with life, and he started trying anything and everything to see what would work. In other words, he tried building things. It never satisfied. He tried sex. It never satisfied. He tried drink. He tried all of it, and none of it ever satisfied him. And that's what the language implies about this young man. He went to the city. He went to a distant country. And he tried everything. And what did it result in? Well, look at verse 14. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. And he began to be in need. Isn't that interesting? It's a little bit like my story. I don't know if it's your story, but but it's a little bit like mine. I started trying things and doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And eventually, it left me in a broken place where I knew I was in trouble. 
I wonder if you've come in here today and, and you have felt a little bit like that. Like, man, what I have been doing has been wrecking my life. And I don't want to say it, so can I just ask it for a friend? Like, I don't want to be honest about it because if I say it, then people are going to... I apologize. I've been ill this week, so thank you for putting up with me. Um, I don't want to say it out loud, okay? I don't want to, you know, if I admit it, then people are going to begin to wonder about me. And that's the reality when we follow this idea of doing whatever we want, whenever we want. Eventually, it takes us to a place of need. See, here's, here's the guy's story. He wished his dad dead, right? And he got his wish. And then what did he do? He did whatever he wanted. He went to a place that he wanted to go with whomever he wanted. Whenever he wanted, that's the story. And it left him broken. Now, I don't know about you, I, I would venture to say that you, you're probably, you know, you, maybe you haven't gone that far, but that's the beauty of this story, is that Jesus is talking to us about these sons, and yes, we'll get to the second son here in a minute, but he's talking to us about these sons, and he's talking to us about the father's reaction, and this son is off the rails. I wonder what's going to happen with him and the father. So what does he do? This young man, he, he starts to do, honestly, I think, he, he does what most of us do. He tries to fix it himself. Verse 15 tells us, So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed pigs. A little bit of background again here. The Jewish people uh, believed that, that pigs were an unclean animal. They would not eat them, much less touch them or be around him. How humiliating this young man is now doing what? Feeding pigs. We go on our own path. Eventually, it, it breaks us. It humbles us. It takes us somewhere we don't want to be. The question is, do you have to stay there? The question is, is God done with you? And here's the beautiful thing. The story shows us a beautiful picture of God's answer. Now, let me show you the bottom of this man's story. It shows up in verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's so down low that he wishes he could have eaten the pig slop. Here, you know what's interesting? Have you ever raised pigs? Ever been around pigs? I, I have. I grew up raising them. Oh, it's awesome. You can never get rid of that smell. Okay? Um, pigs will literally eat anything. Do you know that? They will literally eat anything anything. And this young man is so hungry that he would eat what they left over. So what does he do? He tries again to fix the problem himself. 
He does what most of us do. Most of our response is, okay, I got to find my way out of this. I got to pick myself up. I got to clean myself off. I know I've messed up. I see it. I've got to fix this myself. So he develops a plan. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he's laying there in the pig slop. What's going on? When he comes to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. All of my father's servants, they, they've got plenty of food. People who are, are they've attached themselves in servitude to my father. He, he pays them. They have their own places to live. They have food left over. Here's what I'm going to do. Verse 18, he said, I'm going to go back to the father. He says this, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He decides to go back and plead with the father. And this is a good start, but look at verse 19. It goes on and says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's saying, hey, I've messed up so bad. I'm going to work for you and earn it and pay it back. You catch that? That's what he's saying. Make me like one of your hired servants. I want to earn it and pay it back. He had a plan to pay his father back. See, the reality is that when things got bad, he did what most of us try and do. He tried to earn his way back. So the next day he packs up. And look at what happens. Verse 20. See, the story does not go like we tend to think. I tend to think, yeah, he should pay the dad back. Like, it makes sense. He said, dad, I want you dead. Give me a third of whatever you owe. Who knows? Was it a lot of money? More than likely. He gives him all, all, and then he goes and he wastes it. He squanders it. Of course, me as a dad, I want to teach my kids. I would kind of want to be like, yeah, of course you're going to pay me back. You know? Is that how the father responds in the story? Is that what Jesus says is going on in the context of dealing with tax collectors and sinners. People that everybody thought God should turn his back on. Well, verse 20 tells us this. So he got up and when he went and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, something happened. His father saw him. Apparently, his father is out there looking for him. Isn't that interesting? He's a long way off. It's not like dad's sitting at home in the rocking chair reclining, and he's looking out the window, and he sees his son like you can see a deer out in the woods. No, he's out on the hilltops looking for his son, and he starts to spot something coming over the horizon, and all of a sudden he sees someone walking, and a dad can tell his dad's, his son's, a dad can tell his son's, you know, pace. A dad can see his kids and know it's them. This is the crucial moment. How's he going to respond? Does he stand there and wait and say, yeah, I knew you'd come crawling back. Yep, I knew you'd have to come back and beg. Yep, I knew you would be a foolish child. You have been foolish since you were born. You are so much like your mom. No, don't say that. Kidding. <laughs> Does he say that? Is that how he responds? Can we just be honest? 
Isn't that how we expect God to respond to us sometimes? Don't we just in the back of our minds just think that 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 may actually be what God is like? That may actually be how God responds when we have messed up so bad, so big that we even surprise ourselves. Isn't that how we tend to think God looks at us? Now, you may not fully believe it, but it creeps in the back of your mind, and you're like, oh, man, I wonder if I've gone too far. I wonder if now this punishment, now this, this difficulty, now all this pain is coming because God's really upset with me, and he's done with me. But interestingly enough, that is not how the story goes. The beautiful thing about this, while this Jesus is making up a story, he is doing this using human people to illustrate a truth about heaven. That's what he's doing here. He's telling a human story to tell us something about heaven and about God and how God interacts with us as messy people. And let's just be honest, this question is not for a friend, it's for us. When does God give up on you? Look at what happens. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. He's moved with compassion for him and this father ran. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now in that culture, elder men did not run. It was not dignified. It was not respectful. They often, they, they were wearing robes that would have been down around your, your, your legs. You could not run in that. You would have to take those robes, hike them up, and tie them up like, well, you know, let's be honest, a little bit like a diaper. And then you could run. Elder men did not do that. But this one does. Why? Because the son is home. Oh, you mean your screw up son? Yeah. My screw up son. Oh, you mean the one who wasted all of your hard earned money on prostitutes and wild living? Yeah. Oh, you mean. The one who spit in your face and said, I wish you were dead? Yeah. So I'm going to run. Because I want him back. Look. Look at the account. He kissed him. And then the son, he, he goes into his whole spiel. Remember, he's got, his, he's got his way of earning it back. So the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father stops him in the middle of his deal. He's like, no, I can't be your son. Please just make me a servant. Let me earn it back. Let me pay you back. Eventually, maybe you could forgive me. And the father says, no, stop, son. Wake up. You're missing the point. And he says this. He says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. In other words, you're back in the family, son. Quick, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Do you know what that ring was? No decision could be made by a family without a signet ring. He's saying, you are back. You're back. 
But wait, he didn't pay it back. But wait, he didn't. You're you're just graciously forgiving him? Yeah, why? Because because he got it. (laughs) And he came back. He's saying, Dad, I messed up. I sinned. I'm sorry. I did wrong. I'm back. And he thought he had to earn it, but the father says no. Father says no. Not only that, he throws a party. And I want you to see why he throws a party. Verse 23, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And here is the why. For this son of mine was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. The first two stories, a sheep was lost. They spared no expense. They set everything else aside to go find the sheep, and then they found it, and there was a celebration. The second, a coin was lost that was part of retirement. It had been saved for all of this woman's life. It's lost. She spares no expense. She clears everything. She lights all the lights. She finds it, and then they throw a celebration. Bigger and better than that is this son who spit in his father's face and went away. And now he's back, which begs a question. Here's the question. Are you the younger son? Now, I don't, I don't know. Some of us in this room are the younger son. Some of us in this room are the older son. But both of them end up having a problem at some point with the father. See, if you are the younger son, here's what I want you to know. There is grace available. All you have to do is come home. Come home. The original question that we're wrestling with for a friend (laughs) is this. When does God give up on you? So far, the answer is this. He doesn't. And I'll tell you, I for one am so, so glad for that. Even, I've been following Jesus for a good number of years now, and I still wrestle with this question. Like, could I mess up too much? Shouldn't I know better? I've known God for such a long time. Is he ever going to stop, you know, chasing after me and pursuing me and loving me and forgiving me? And the answer is no. Go back to the Father. That's the answer. Now, let's look at the older son, because that's not the end of the story. Verse 25, look at what happens. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Huh, this is weird. My brother's been gone for a while. Things have been quiet around the homestead. Dad's been out searching for him, and now all of a sudden there's music and dancing and partying, and I can smell, oh, what is that smell? Is that prime rib? Oh, my word. Mm. Y'all are hungry now, aren't you? Smells good. And he's wondering what's going on. So, he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. He says, hey, what's going on in the house? And the servant 
He explains it. He says this, your brother, your brother has come. The father, your father has killed the fatted calf and he has, because he has him back safe and sound. The the servant says, hey, we're having a party. Here's why we're having a party. Because your brother's back and doesn't it make sense? I mean, it made sense to the father. It makes sense if you understand the father's forgiveness. But if you were the older brother and you had done all the right things and you stayed home and you were biding your time and you were obeying all the rules and you were serving the father when the, the younger brother was off running around, you might be a little bit upset. Can we just be honest? There's a little bit of self-righteousness in all of us. What if you feel like you've been taken advantage of? What if you feel like the father that you've been serving is being taken advantage of? So how does he respond? The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. He refuses to go in to the party that his father is throwing. His father is excited. His father has responded. He put a robe on his brother. He put a ring on his finger. He put sandals on his feet. And the older brother says, nope. I'm out. Deuces. What an insult. First, the younger brother says, Dad, I'm out. See ya. Now the older brother says, Dad, you're too forgiving. I'm out. See ya. The brother should have cleaned up his life. He should have paid back his third. He should have done everything that needed to be done to fix this. And then, then maybe if he groveled, then maybe if he begged, we would let him back in. But that's not what the father wanted and not how the father responded. So what does the father do with the older brother? Interestingly enough, he does the same thing that he did with the younger. He goes after him. Look at verse 28. So his father went out. Don't miss those words, went out. He physically went out of the house. The party's going on. He's there wanting to celebrate. He inconveniences himself to go out and plead with the older son. He says to him, come, come into the party, come back in. But the the son answers, verse 29, he answers his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fatted calf for him. The older son cared more about the father's things than he cared about the father. Isn't it interesting that both of them, the younger and the older, had the same problem? See, the younger just wanted the father's things, didn't want the father. The the older stays. He's still there. He sticks around. 
But he ended up having the same problem too. Even though he was righteous or self-righteous and did the right things, he has the same problem. He cared more about the Father's things than he cared about the Father. For him, it was performance over people, morality over relationship. For the younger, it was, I'm free, do whatever I want, and you can't tell me. The Father responded, With these gracious words, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate because your brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. You see, we have these two brothers The first, the younger brother valued things over the father. He lived a self-indulgent life. He was deep in sin. He insulted his father. And and maybe that is you. But the second is really no different. Because he valued things over his father. He lived a self-righteous life. He was deep in pride. And he insulted the father. Now, if you're anything like me, we tend to read this passage and see one good son and one bad son. We even call it the the prodigal son. We call this story the story of the prodigal son. Do you know what the interesting thing is? Both of them were prodigals. Both of them ran away from the father. They were prodigals. Both lost. Here's what I know about every single one of us in this room today. Some of us try to get control by breaking the rules. Some of us try to get control of our lives by breaking the rules. Look, I can do whatever I want. I'm in control. And some of us try to get control by keeping the rules, thinking that we could earn the Father's favor. And I would tell you, both of those are wrong. We think that, we think that God wants good people, but here's the reality of the gospel. The reality of the gospel is that God wants lost people. So when Jesus wrestles with this question of why are you spending time with these tax collectors and sinners? And when we we wrestle with the question of when does God give up on us? When does God say, that's it, I'm done, I'm I'm, I'm not looking for you anymore. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus responds with an answer you would never never expect. He just says this, when are you going to run back to the Father? Will you return to the Father? Because he's never going to stop looking for you. That's the father. I know, I know people have turned their back on you. I know. I know that people have told you something different. I know. But he is never going to stop looking. Will you return? I want to ask you to watch a story 
from somebody who's a part of Bridgewater about how God chased after them despite their wild living and then self-righteous thinking. Her name is Sarah Ampett. Would you watch? My home life was amazing. We grew up in a Catholic family, and so I can't remember not knowing Jesus' name, not having him as a friend to pray to and talk to. In college, I started to have experiences and classes where I was having a lot more questions than answers and went and did whatever I wanted to do. I was in sports, I got the best classes, had the great grades, was studying, had good social groups, um, great friends, and I was replacing one thing for another. If I went to the cancer club and got that fundraiser done and I did so good in it, well, it didn't matter that I partied. And if I, um, you know, was attending church on Sunday, well, that would just replace my sins. That's, that's good enough, because look how good I am over here. That covers this. And I think at the time I didn't intentionally make it that way, or I at least definitely wasn't spending the time thinking through it. Um, and when I reflect back, that's exactly what I was doing, not even knowing or not, you know, in the forefront of my decision making, deciding, oh, this is good enough, so that's fine. You know, I'd, I didn't walk through it like that, but when I reflect on it, that's all that it was. You know, this is, I'm doing this so good, we don't have to talk about that. After college, um, I moved up in this area to become close with my um, now husband. And when we got engaged, I, I was like, we need to, <laughs> we need to get some marriage counseling. We need to be connected to a church. Um, and I'm telling you, the loving people of Bridgewater really were the ones who poured into us and encouraged us. Just in the most recent season, um, I have to give some credit to the pandemic. I was put on an improvement plan at school. I'm a teacher and I pour my heart into it and I care about it a lot. And through the pandemic, I didn't realize that I was on survivalism mode. And um, so the district called me out on some things that I needed to improve on and that shattered my reality because just growing up and always getting straight A's and always doing the right thing, always checking the boxes. You're supposed to do this, done. You're supposed to do this, done. And I, I get a lot of pride from that. I enjoy checking boxes, being in my job, having a passion for it, it's going great. And then the pandemic saying, you could be doing better was like, what? I wouldn't hear it in the beginning. Um, and thankfully was in small group brought this to people who love me, people who, you know, were able to speak truth in this situation. Um, and just, they just encouraged me to just keep bringing it to God, keep praying, keep talking to him about it. And I feel like every time I did, he was uprooting something in my heart that was in the way of me seeing his truth and experiencing his truth. It was in the way of me accepting the grace, which is I've made mistake or I did not live up to the excellence that we're called to. And so it was this year, April 22nd, and Matt had led anyone who was needing to say, I need to be forgiven of my sins and that I want to give my whole life to you, Jesus. Um, and I just remember sitting there like, how do I, how do, why do I feel this pull? Like I've never said this prayer like I have just now. Um, it wasn't about what I, what I learned and the knowledge and the logic. It was me finally giving my heart to God. It was me changing. Well, I love Jesus because he's so good and he's, no, 
I love Jesus. He has been there for me. He's been faithful for me all through. If you would come to the Father with that leap of faith, he will meet you there and he will surprise you with just abundant grace and abundant forgiveness and abund abundant joy and life and freedom. And I'm just so thankful that I get to walk in that. My name is Sarah Empit, and I am here to make more and better disciples of Jesus. See, Sarah's story is so powerful because it's different than what we expect. She thought she could trade one thing and negotiate with the Father and, and get Him to respond if she just did enough. And I would tell you, that's the opposite of the good news of Jesus. So I want to leave you with just a clear explanation of what the good news of Jesus is. The clearest explanation that I can give you shows up in Romans chapter 3. It says this, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Whether you're the older brother or the younger brother, we fall in this category. Yet God in his grace, he freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. He set us free. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life-shedding blood. It is, it is not paying it back. It is not my good deeds outweighing my bad. It's plain and simple. Jesus did what I couldn't do for myself, and he paid for me. Because frankly, I had a little bit of both brothers in me. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal or us being declared right is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. It's based on saying, you know what? I can't pay for this. I can't fix it. I messed up so bad. I am just going to run back. I am going to run to the Father. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. I simply want to leave you with one question. Will you run to the Father? Will you pray with me right here, right now? Because I'm confident in a room like this that God is stirring in somebody's, somebody's heart here today saying, what is keeping you back? It is time for you to run back to me. Come back. As I pray, I, I'm not going to pretend like, like a prayer just fixes everything, but, but to evidence your faith, you talk to God. You, you pray and you ask him to forgive you and you ask him to make you right with him through Jesus. As I pray, if that is you today, would you just pray with me? Father, I have hurt you. I've spit in your face. I've acted like you weren't the God of the universe. I've acted like I'm bigger than my britches, and I've done my own thing. God, 
I'm ready to come home. I'm going to trust that Jesus, that his death, burial, and resurrection is enough. I believe he did it for me. Please forgive me. Please make me new. Please bring me back into your family by faith in Jesus so that I can walk with you. Thank you for Jesus. I believe he is enough. I pray in Jesus' name.